All right, we are live, ladies and gentlemen. Anti-ESG month is wrapping up on Capitol Hill. What is going on with ESG? Is the movement falling apart? What does the future look like for ESG? We have some very, very interesting updates for you on this topic. We're talking about all this and more on episode 408 of the In the Tank podcast. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me today, I've got Justin Haskins, director of the Socialism Research Center here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Doing very well. Very, very well. Um, Excited to spend time with you guys, as always. I don't have anything more important to do. This is my most important thing. So I'm very, I'm very excited. I'm feeling good. That's right. Yeah, he got berated for missing that one week when the book came out. And uh, he's learned his lesson, so he's back with full humility, wearing one of his classic hats. Wearing one of my classic hats. You guys flogged me when I came back from Dallas and uh, put me in the stocks, you know. Interestingly, I uh, went to college. Actually, I didn't go to college in Williamsburg, Virginia, but my wife did. And we lived in Williamsburg together. And Williamsburg, Virginia is one of these places where they have like... uh, like much of the downtown is colonial. And so uh, they actually have the stocks oh, still sweet. there. They keep the stocks there. So nice. That's um, better than what they have down in, uh, in Paris when, when they're, when they're sticking to their, you know, guillotines and all of that. But that's, that's another America story. is better than France. <laughs> no doubt about that. Whatsoever. Chris Telgo, editorial director at the Heartland Institute is also joining us. How are you doing today? Good, sir. Doing good, enjoying this uh, very, very hot weather. I'm a big fan of the hot weather, so I'm loving the heat wave. Ugh, no, I, I loving I, it. I could do without. Also, joining us, a special guest for this week. We booted Jim off for the week because we needed to make room for Stone Washington, research fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Oh, I'm doing very good, Donald, and thank you so much for uh, making the space for me on today's show. That's right. Well, it came at Jim's expense, so it was a very easy decision for me. So uh, Stone has done a lot of work on the issue of ESG, most recently writing a piece published at CEI talking about the efforts of the GOP's ESG working group. But we are going to get to all of that. Don't you worry. We have plenty of ESG stuff to get into. But uh, before we get into anything, I have that message that I put out there at the beginning of all episodes, which is to encourage those people that are audio-only listeners that are probably catching the show on a Friday or later that you can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon Central Time, where we are streaming on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Rumble. And you can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we will address your comments. Maybe we will address your questions on the fly. We will see. We also have that super chat functionality enabled if you want to get 
guarantee your comment or question is read on the show. Also, if you are an audio-only listener, leaving a review for us on iTunes would be greatly appreciated. And those that are listening or watching, I should say, on YouTube and Rumble, if you hit that subscribe button, if you hit that share button, if you hit a like button, or just leave a comment under the video, all of those things help break through the big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. But gentlemen, ESG, obviously, very important stuff. Uh, some of the stuff that we're going to get into is just... Just wild, to use a term that Justin loves when I use. Uh, but before we get into any of that, uh, it seems like there's been a lot of Hunter Biden and Joe Biden news breaking lately. We talked on the show a few weeks back about some of the stuff in regards to the FBI documents that seem to link Joe and Hunter to a bribery scandal with some Ukrainian oligarchs. Then there were some uncovered WhatsApp messages to businessmen in China from Hunter talking about how his dad was sitting right next to him and, oh, you're going to feel the full fury of Joe Biden's wrath if you don't do what I say, that type of stuff. And I'm sure there was like 15 other things that have happened in the past uh, uh, couple of weeks in regard to the story. But now we have Hunter Biden's ex-business partner, Devin Archer, who is supposedly going to testify that Biden... Uh, amongst other things. But one of the things is that Biden was on speakerphone during some of these shady business calls with uh, Hunter Biden and some of these, you know, different, uh, you know, biz international business players. So, Chris, you were telling me about some of this stuff yesterday. Can you explain what's going on here? So uh, earlier this week, the, um, the Hunter Biden's defense team and the prosecutors uh, met in court and they were supposed to agree to the plea agreement. Uh, but when the judge uh, saw the plea agreement, she started asking a bunch of questions and immediately the, the agreement just it fell apart. And uh, what ended up happening was Hunter Biden ended up pleading non guilty. He not guilty. He was arraigned on the counts for the gun charge and for tax evasion. And uh, now they have until August 25th to re put together the agreement. Uh, it they can. Otherwise, it looks like this will go to trial and looks like Hunter Biden could be in for a lot of trouble and a lot of jail time. And it looks like we could finally get to the bottom of the big guys rolling all this. And it looks like the walls are closing in on the Bidens and Donnie, even the mainstream media, the CNNs, MSNBCs, ABCs, NBCs and CBSs are even reporting on this. So I think it has, you know, uh, made it into the mainstream uh, media's, uh, you know, point of view. So I think that is a big, big move. Yeah, Justin, I mean, some of the stories that I was reading, reading off and, and some of the other stuff that I didn't even mention, it's, you know, like the can you imagine if this was a Republican game is so boring. Uh, but is this amount of media like cover uh, of this type of corruption just like unprecedented? Because it's seriously pretty wild stuff. Um, You know, totally unprecedented. I, I don't know. I mean, if you think about what happened with with uh, Benghazi, I mean, that was quite the scandal. I mean, you you talk, I mean, you literally had a uh, an embassy that was uh, under attack. It was raided. Um, you had uh, a cover up essentially of of the issues related to security at that at, at in Benghazi and um, and what was known and what wasn't known. And then you had. The Secretary of State at the time, Hillary Clinton, who had a, a turns out she had a, a, a email server in her residence that was storing confidential and even classified information that was not 
something she was supposed to be doing. Uh, and then she covered that up and destroyed all the materials related to that and bleach bit everything. And, and then there was an investigation into that. And she basically lied and said that, oh, no, I was only using the server for my yoga schedule or whatever the heck she classic, was saying. And, classic. You know, uh, my my uh, daughter's wedding and that kind of stuff. And it turns out that wasn't the case. So, I mean, I don't know that it's completely unprecedented, but I will say that if you were to if you were to look at maybe the top five biggest scandals of the past, like, hundred years, I think this is in the top five. I mean, I definitely think it's solidly in the top five, not necessarily the Hunter personal issues. You know, that's just I'm sure there are lots of examples of um, of family members of presidents or key political figures who have been, you know, drug addicts and using prostitutes and bringing drugs into the White House. Well, maybe, maybe not all those things, but at least some of those things. And, and, like, and so I'm sure it's been like a problem before. Uh, I've heard stories about, was it Billy? Billy Carter or Billy Clinton? Chris probably knows. He Billy, like Billy Carter, Billy Beer. Yeah, Billy Carter. Of course, Chris knows. Um, who, you know, was like a horrible embarrassment to the Carter administration. So, I mean, there's been things like that. But, yeah, I heard Andrew Jackson's, uh, you know, cousin was a real wild one. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure he was. He's probably, you know, doing all kinds of crazy stuff at the brothels or whatever. But, um, but the, the the difference is that uh, you have Hunter Biden is not just out doing crazy criminal stuff. He is doing that, but he's also, in addition to doing that, seemingly engaging in all kinds of nefarious activities using his father who was vice president and is now president of the United States as the mechanism through which he's able to get these various business arrangements overseas and other things. They, it appears based on the evidence that we have, which is very good evidence that they brought in millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into the Biden family through uh, various business arrangements overseas at the very least. Um, and that Joe Biden personally benefited from this. It seems very clear from the evidence that we have that that was the case. He was getting a cut of the money. Hunter Biden was getting a cut of the money. Other family members were getting cuts of the money. Um, this explains why the Biden family uh, has rolling in cash for reasons we can't exactly understand. You literally have the CEO uh, or the heads of some of these companies coming out and saying, yeah, Joe Biden was getting money. And so it's just like, not really, this is, this is, it doesn't require a ton of investigating at this point. It's pretty sure. clear. It's just that the media has decided it's not an opportune time to go after Joe Biden. And so they're not, um, well, there were whispers of that happening. And I think that that might change and we might see them, you know, kill the Biden administration. Um, and and want to start putting somebody else involved uh, or somebody else in in line to be president in 2024, 2025. But we haven't seen that happen. Well, I want I, I, I so, want to ask about that. I want to ask about that. But first, uh, Stone, do you do you stay apprised of all this type of stuff when it comes to the, the political game and all the different uh, corruption accusations and all of that? Yes. So. Um... While it's not like kind of my primary uh, focus in terms of keeping up with politics, I, I do keep up a little bit with what's going on um, with the, the, the Biden family accusations. And uh, I, I've also I've read a few of um, 
Peter Schweitzer's book. Uh, he's oh, sure. a, a notable uh, investigative reporter, and he has uncovered a lot of um, information about kind of like the corrupt behind the scenes dealings of both Republican and Democrats in, in, in Congress and also in the executive branch. And uh, from what I've seen um, in recent articles, it seems like that um, the, the, the Hunter Biden um, plea deal, uh, and, and this kind of might be speculating on what the judge is looking at, but it seemed like it was kind of a uh, a tap on the wrist, like mm-hmm. if, if this was like a regular person that had these charges, um, both the, the tax charges and the and the, the drug related issues um, brought against that individual, I, I think they would be doing some serious jail time and wouldn't have such leverage to be able to kind of use their political name to um, kind of ease out of right. a more like harmful um, charge. And so, so I think um, also, um, in the recent congressional hearings, um, I think um, Representative Matt Gates did a really good job of questioning uh, FBI Director Ray and the uh, FBI's alarming involvement in this matter in terms of, um, I, I guess, serving like as a, a uh, kind of like a buffer or barrier to prevent a lot of the um, public from knowing about Hunter Biden's laptop and, and, and kind of what's Oh, sure. Involved on that. And, and I think that that kind of equated to potential election interference because a number of voters would have probably changed their um, perspective on Joe Biden during the 2020 election had they known about these kind of secret um, overseas dealings in Ukraine and China and, 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 and peddling millions of dollars to the Biden family to kind of use Joe Biden's position as a vice president to kind of as like a, a, a tool of political enrichment. Mm. And so I, I think that's that, that's very speculative. And, and, and as a um, as a researcher of public policy, in, in, in terms of looking at the administrative state, I think uh, the FBI having its involvement in as not being a neutral party, but actually being kind of a an advocate or an enforcer for Joe Biden's family, I think that's probably one of the biggest issues. Yeah, no doubt. And, yeah, I mean, Justin was telling me about this story regarding Hunter's art, and I think you know Hunter's art uh his you know art artistic ventures or whatever has come become a bit of a joke i think everyone kind of understands all of that but he was telling me about uh, the story about this big democrat donor friend of the biden's bought this piece of hunter's art for like hundreds of thousands of dollars maybe like a million dollars some like crazy amount of money and then this donor just happened to be appointed by president biden to a commission for the preservation of america's heritage abroad some some really you know nice position up there. Uh, just months after she purchased the art, and I'm just like, come on, man! This is like comic book level corruption. Like it's so obvious that it just seems like they don't even care to try to hide it. I bet that Hunter art piece that was purchased was just like shoved in that lady's trunk, never to be seen again. Because that wasn't the point. The point wasn't buying art. The point was buying favor with the family of the person that could that could put you in a position like that. But it's just it's just absolutely bizarre to me. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, yeah, just a couple more things. So one of the things the judge said was she's not a rubber stamp, and she has, uh, you know, very questionable about this plea deal that was the sweetheart deal of all sweetheart deals because as part of the uh, plea agreement, Hunter Biden would receive broad immunity among uh, for eternity among any of these, you know, uh, affiliated charges that are still being investigated. Uh, we should also mention that uh, Hunter Biden's legal team called the judge's clerk's office impersonating the House Ways and Means Committee's office, asking that the uh, that the 400 page amicus brief that the House Ways and Means Committee chairman submitted uh, to the judge 
uh, as part of the uh, process that she would look at all the evidence. Uh, and, you know, they they basically tried to get that, you know, thrown off the docket. So she was very upset about that. She was, uh, you know, really, really uh, surprised at how the plea agreement seemed to be so one sided. And uh, furthermore, you know, she started asking a bunch of questions about how come he's not being charged with uh, being a foreign uh you know, actor, how come, you know, a foreign agent, uh, how come uh, th that this broad-based immunity would apply even if a Republican president were to be elected in, in the future? So she had a lot of questions about this. And really what it did was it showed that there is a direct connection between the Justice Department uh, and the IRS and all these federal uh, executive agencies, you know, really just trying to uh, sweep these, you know, crimes under the rug. Uh, you know, th the gun charge alone, that, that, you know, has been prosecuted time and time again. And, you know, there are famous cases of rappers who have been charged with this and they went to jail. Mm. How come Hunter Biden doesn't have to go to jail? Uh, same with the uh, not paying taxes. You know, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, uh, the House Ways and Meeks uh, Committee has shown, received $17 million from, the, you know, uh, foreign countries, including China and uh, Ukraine. They didn't pay taxes on that. And, you know, Devin Archer is in hiding. Uh, he's said that he is uh, under threat for his life and he is going to uh, do a behind uh, closed doors deposition. And they've leaked some of the testimony that he is prepared to say that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden were intimately involved in this. Joe Biden knew knew about every single business deal. He was on the phone. You know, they were on speakerphone. So once again, I do think this is possibly the beginning of the end for the Brad, uh, Biden, you know, crime family. Yeah. Uh, just, wait, 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 Justin, I'll, yeah. I'll let you have the final word on this, but I want to pitch a question to the audience uh, because there, there was a talk between uh, at least Justin, Chris and I uh, before the show that like, you know, is the dam breaking? Like, is this too much crap to hold back even for the, the establishment media and all of that? And it was just kind of like wondering whether or not, this is going to lead to the the end of President Joe Biden's kind of reelection ambitions. So let me know what you think. Do you think that it's the end of Joe Biden's presidency, uh, or at least you know what he's not going to run next time? They're going to get somebody else. So if so, say yes if you think that's the case. But if you do say yes, um, you have to propose who you think is going to be pushed by the Democrats as the person running for the presidency in twenty twenty four. Um, if you don't think so, you think it's all going to be covered up, say that as much as well. But Justin, final words on this. I want to get to ESG. Yeah. So just a real quick uh, correction. I don't know that we know exactly when the donor who seems to have received a favor for buying the art, when they bought the art. I don't think we actually know that. The I one article I read said that it was it was months later that they were appointed. So. Okay, well, I don't know, but the bottom line is it seems very suspicious. There's another person who bought, and, and, and the reason I'm bringing up the, the, the art thing um, again is because although all the stuff that is, you know, uh, crazy that Chris was just referring to regarding, you know, Burisma and some of these other uh, companies overseas and shell corporations and the, the web of, of different companies that were set up with the Biden family to receive payments. Why, why would you do that, by the way, <laughs> unless you're trying to hide something? But um, the reason I bring up the art thing is because it's like that's happening now. Like, like they're getting money for the art now. You know, while he's president right now and people knew that it was happening and they asked 
about it specifically. And they said, oh, no, no, we're not going to, you know, there's not going to be anything going on here. Don't worry. You know, there's going to be this separation of Hunter's, you know, art dealings. And Hunter, Hunter Biden is not a famous artist. So it's, it's, it's ludicrous that this is the case. But there's one unknown. The fact that the media is not harping on this every single day after everything we saw with Donald Trump is amazing. There is one buyer one buyer we know this from the from the actual records from the gallery who has spent $875,000 on 11 pieces of artwork and we don't know who this is so right. somebody's buying almost a million dollars worth of Hunter Biden art and we don't know who that person it's is and we don't know why they're doing it other than oh. i guess they just love Hunter Biden you know they love his artwork it's yeah, like He's this the new is, Picasso. Just wait. Right. Just wait. How is there not an investigation? How is it that they're not at least required to disclose this privately to somebody? Like, I don't even understand why that question is not being – and forget about the legal implications of that. Why, aren't, why isn't the media at least demanding that they release this information so that we can know for sure that this isn't some sort of corruption? Like, they should at least be doing that. We heard how much about Trump's tax – uh, returns not being released. We we heard about that for years. Demands after demand after demand that the Trump admin, that that Donald Trump releases tax records, which are private information, because we need to know it's it's a threat to our democracy that we don't know. And yet here you have the son of the president, who's not an artist, receiving all, more than a million dollars for crap art. And nobody we, seems to care. Like if we had time, if we had time to cover it, the media would cover it. They've got more important things to cover. God. January sixth happened. What, like two years ago? We got to cover that, Justin. I so, know. Uh, but no, time I, I, I am seeing a couple of comments of people saying yes, they do think that he's being pushed aside, making the way for Gavin Newsom. I've seen one person suggest Michelle Obama, although they didn't use that name. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> But I do want to get to our main topic. We're already 20 minutes in. ESG has taken a bit of a backseat lately after being at the forefront of a national discussion for a pretty long period of time. Uh, over the course of, uh, you know, the, the while that was kind of at the forefront of everybody's mind, we celebrated some great victories on the ESG front. And then I think a lot of people just kind of got complacent uh, in this super important battle. You know, some people thought like, all right, it's on its heels. I mean, even Larry Fink's kind of running away from the term like, all right, let's focus on something else. But it's still a very important thing. And uh, and I'm curious, Stone, your kind of general thoughts about ESG before we get into some of these conversations, because the way that we've talked about it has always been in the context of like the great resets or the idea of stakeholder capitalism advocated by people like Larry Fink at BlackRock or Brian Moynihan at Bank of America to Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum, that basically ESG is this tool that could be used to force the adoption of an agenda by society by co-opting corporations, creating a sort of social credit score for businesses. So we've always kind of talked about it in that kind of grand scale of things. But what's your perspective on ESG and its role in society? Yes. So I, I think um, your interpretation of ESG is very accurate. I think that's um, spot on, certainly a modern iteration of ESG as it's um, being applied in a political sense. Um, but I, I just want to say, uh, and many people may not know that um, ESG really isn't um, anything new. Um, it, it currently stands for environmental social governance, 
but it's actually a form of uh, value-driven ethical investing that's been around for at least over 100 years. Um, I, I think maybe some of the, uh, the earliest iterations might have been around the early 20th century. Um, and it's you, you would hear like it, it was uh, mentioned in different names like um, uh, corporate social responsibility or um, socially responsible investing, SRI or CSR. And it was uh, mostly a way of um, kind of uh, companies thinking beyond just growing the value of their profits into actually producing some kind of visible benefit for uh, the surrounding communities or contributing to the environment in a positive manner. And it was a way to um, kind of encourage, like what you mentioned earlier, stakeholder capitalism, where uh, people who don't have a, like an active investment in the company are receiving some kind of uh, social benefit that's non-financial in nature. And so I think the biggest difference between ESG, that, that earlier form of ESG, uh, which was kind of like voluntarily encouraging uh, philanthropists and business owners to kind of in, uh, shift some of their focus to benefiting the environment and b helping out social justice causes. What's different from that kind of voluntary form and today's form is that today's ESG is like basically a, a mandate by right. government to kind of push companies into adopting certain principles and standards that uh, do away with the tradition of a shareholder driven capitalist perspective that says that basically companies shouldn't be trying to focus on like their bottom line, but should be adopting like a triple bottom line, which is people, the planet, uh, and I think the surrounding communities and, and just kind of finding a way to um, basically coerce the true meaning of what a company should be uh, focused on, and which mm -hmm. Milton Friedman believed that the only responsibility that a company has is to its shareholders. And so I think um, what you're seeing now with certain government agencies even trying to adopt policies that promote ESG values um, in a mandatory uh, perspective, that's very different from what we've seen, like kind of this more low-key, voluntary um, form of ESG that I mentioned um, in the 20th century. Yeah, and even ESG, and I've mentioned this on the show before, but uh, you know, it was it was a topic that I know Heartland had covered very, very barely. You know, uh, prior to when me and Justin kind of get on the game and all of this, and the Great Reset really blew up, and it was just kind of like I remember coming across these articles, and it's just like it just kind of seemed like like investment jargon didn't seem that important or anything. But then as we started putting the pieces together when we were when we were working on the Great Reset book uh, with Glenn Beck. We realized that like the infrastructure that was put in place and these kind of mandatory aspects of it, you know, as opposed to some voluntary thing that that you were talking about, like really did equate to some like the the machinery that was put in place was had the potential to 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 make wholesale changes across across society, the economy in general, in a way of punishing corporations that, that weren't going along and rewarding ones that were. And I've always called it like the biggest cronyist system that's ever been created. Um, and, and this type of messaging uh, has resonated. Uh, you know, a lot of people saw this for what it was and, and it raised a lot of alarm. Uh, similarly with lawmakers and policymakers and all of that have also saw that and have you know in many cases actually like began action on pushing back against esg uh and then what we were seeing this month in july was anti-esg month on capitol hill but before we get into that chris you want to say something 
Yeah, I agree with everything that Stone you know, said in terms of the government side of uh, ESG, but I also think that we cannot overlook the giant asset managers who control trillions and trillions of dollars. We've got the big three, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, and they are using that financial consolidation, that financial clout to push companies who otherwise would want nothing to do with this right. to play ESG ball, because if they don't, well, then guess what? They are not going to have access to the trillions and trillions of dollars that these, uh, you know, giant asset management companies, you know, have at their disposal. And right. it, it, but it's even worse than that. It's the insurance companies. Well, we won't give you insurance coverage if you don't play ball on the ESG front. So I think of it as like uh, a the bike, banks, it's the banks, banks too. too. We won't give banks, you any financial banks, services but, but, or loans. But, but, it's, it, but it's important to remember that the asset management companies have con uh, controlling interests in the banks, as well as 95% of the S&P 500 companies. So that allows them to have like a vice grip or the government's, I know, from one end saying, you better do this. And then the asset managers are also taking these companies and saying, you better do this or else you're going to go bankrupt because we aren't going to give you access to capital and, uh, you know, access to grow your business. So I think of it as like, you know, just a, a vice grip that is just crushing any business yeah. to, that does not want to play ESG ball. And I think and, a lot of businesses actually don't, but they're being forced to. Yeah. And another thing, this isn't reading between the lines. This isn't uh, coming up with uh, insinuations or anything like that based on like these are direct quotes. Like we could pull yeah. up direct quotes the 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 uh, reason why I put Brian Moynihan in there from Bank of America, notably, obviously, it's a big bank and all of that. But there was some Davos type conference. I don't know if it was specifically Davos or just something hosted by the World Economic Forum, where he's like very specifically said, like if you don't play by the ESG rules, you won't get any loans. Like you won't get the access to capital. Like he like directly. I can find the quote. Like he, he directly says that. So. He actually it was actually worse than just saying it at a conference. It was uh, a letter that he sent, I think it was to CEOs. Um, and it, if it wasn't, it was to the shareholders because he's done shareholder letters and he's done letters to the CEO. He does those every year. And he's, yeah, and you're right. I mean, he said things like access to capital is a privilege. It's not a right. And we're going to, you know, make sure that everybody is doing the things that we think are important. And this is how the free market works. This is what capitalism is. And he made that, he's made that abundantly clear that that's, that's going to be imposed. Right. You either are on the train or you're not on the train. You're either getting left behind and you're going to just sort of disintegrate into nothing or you're going to play ball with us. That's how this has been presented to these CEOs of these big corporations, not just by, by BlackRock, but by banks and by central banks and others as well. They're all working together. They're all intermingled. They're all invested with each other. They're all, it's a public private partnership and that's why it's so powerful. And it's why we're seeing the transformations that we see today. Um, this is, and, and you don't need to look far to find it. It's the reason why Amazon bans books that they don't like sometimes. It's the reason why Target bans books sometimes that they don't like. It's the reason why uh, Bud Light is trying to sell, you know, uh, a beer that's traditionally only drunken by frat boys uh, it's using spokespeople who are, you know, transgender men that, you know, really don't have any, uh, <laughs> there is no group of people that are buying beer who, who find uh, that person appealing. And so why, why are they doing that? The reason they're doing it is all because there is this pressure from investors, the big asset managers, from banks, from central banks, from government, um, 
all moving in that same direction. And when you have all those people working together, it is very, very hard for any company, no matter how big they are, to resist that. And that's why it's it's so it's so dangerous. Yeah. So like I mentioned, there is uh, anti-ESG month going on at Capitol Hill. And I'll admit that I haven't really been keeping a close eye on what was going on during this supposed anti-ESG month. Uh, but Stone, I think that you commented that you were paying at least a little bit of attention to this. What What's what's going on? And, and you know, is it... Uh, is it worth uh, uh, applauding these, you know, GOP uh, representatives for whatever they're doing down there for anti-ESG month? Yes, yes. So, um, yeah, I was actually I was in a um, financial services working group meeting um, in in June, about mid June, right before um, the Republicans announced that they were going to have this anti-ESG month, and um, I think what they're doing is is very important work. Um, it, it really. What inspired it was a um, a re- critical report that the um, Republican ESG Working Group, which is basically a subgroup under the House Financial Services Committee, uh, devised in uh, February, which um, basically it, it serves as like a preliminary report of gathered research on uh, the many harms and issues that are inherent with ESG and specifically how ESG serves as a detriment to everyday retail investors, the, the kind of this everyday people who are just investing for their financial futures or their education or um, saving for the next generation. Um, many, many of these people don't really understand the different quagmires and pitfalls that are presented by ESG. And so what this Republican committee was, um, or working group was formed to do was to just kind of basically gather research on what the kind of inherent issues are with ESG is specifically focused on the lack of transparency with uh, proxy advisory firms, which is basically a duopoly of two major firms, Glass Lewis and uh, ISS, Institutional Shareholder Services. And um, basically they are the, they're kind of like the consultants that are speaking in the ears of uh, major asset managers like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, who then control like, I guess, an outsized share of the equity markets, I, I think like 70 over 70% of the S&P 500. Uh, and they're there. So they're the ones that are kind of like the brainchild to push a lot of these kind of nets, um, either like net zero initiatives or GHG targets uh, that companies should adopt or a certain um, racial equity audits that are being conducted to uh, I guess, see like the, the different racial makeup of a company or, or then of course, um, requirements that a certain number of women or LGBTQ members should serve on the board of a company. All these different ESG measures are coming from these proxy advisory firms, but they're not registered with the SEC. They're not required to disclose their methods for making recommendations. And so that was one of the big issues in this critical report was kind of requiring these um, these firms to be more transparent in their methods and also putting um, a greater criteria in terms of making suggestions that are actually going to be financially successful for the companies that they're making the recommendations to, not that they're just trying to pursue these non-financial political objectives. And then an- another um, reason for um, this ESG month is um, something that I'm really studying a lot and doing. A, I'm currently doing a research project on is the Securities and Exchange Commission's uh, climate disclosure rule, which um, basically I can you can understand that as being like a a, a large mandatory ESG requirement that in addition to what companies need to disclose in terms of their financial metrics, their 
um, kind of how much money they made in a given year, their net income and, and, and other factors about the company. Now, public companies are required to disclose their environmental impact and how it kind of climate change risk bear on their decision to make investments or how um, the board of directors kind of oversee climate risks when making decisions about the company. And so all this is just basically a large expansion of the definition of materiality, which is supposed to be what a reasonable investor would consider when making a decision to invest their money in a company or not. None of that actually includes concerns about the climate or um, decarbonization or mm-hmm. whether I'm actually impacting uh, the environment in a way that's negative because I'm investing in a, a oil or natural gas company or something like that. And so they, th- that really sparked a lot of um, concern amongst Republicans in this working group due to the SEC's actions. And uh, that that was on kind of the heels of a um, hearing that they did in April with uh, Chairman Gary Gensler, who's basically kind of the brainchild of the climate disclosure rule and has been a very controversial uh, chair for the SEC in terms of pushing like a lot of um, pro ESG rules at the SEC. And so um, that that's what this, this report really looks at in terms of just kind of promoting um, research that engages in what the, these many different issues in ESG are. Danny, yeah. Danny, that is such a great point because when these businesses are forced to come up with these subjective climate impact reports, guess what? That means that they are having to divert resources, work time from actual endeavors that would be fruitful for the company, like research and development or other things. So this is also just making them less profitable by forcing them to take thousands of hours and and also hire. Uh, accounting firms to do these, you know, things. And guess what? Small businesses can't do it. So it's another way to just, you know, take the small businesses out of the equation and further centralize power in the big corporations because they do have the wherewithal. To but do when that. the machine is this big, putting money towards, uh, you know, R- RNC or, or, you know, compliance with ESG is more important than research and development because I found the quote. Uh, So I found the quote that I was referring to. So it was during Davos 2022, uh, during the Global ESG and Global Resilience Panel, Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America, was very blunt about the intentions of ESG, saying, quote, the ones that deliver on the metrics will get more capital. The ones that don't will get less. That uh, and that'll keep pushing people in that direction. So it's very not reading between the lines, folks. Like this well, and, is the stated goals, and and, and 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 it's a cottage industry in and of itself. Because like Stone said, you know these groups like uh, Glass Lewis and uh, ISS, they're making hand over fist by you know by providing these services which actually don't benefit the consumer whatsoever or the business or the business at hand. However, they obviously benefit, you know, the people who are at those firms and the McKenzie's and all, all these, you know, uh, so-called consulting, you know, firms that are now all in on ESG. They're making they're making lots of money off of it. Yeah. And Chris, you published a piece in the center square about the GOP led house uh, reintroducing the Ensuring Sound Guidance Act. Uh, is that another step towards is that basically just like a like a like a PR thing, like, again, just kind of raising the profile of this issue? Or is there like real possibility of that becoming law? Well, tell, tell us about it, too. I, I mean, it's not it's not going to be come become law with the Democrat held Senate and uh, Joe Biden in the Oval Office. However, I'm glad that they did reintroduce it because I think that it it, it is a bill that actually would uh, have a positive impact on some of the things that we're talking about here like the fact that it would basically bar 
these, uh, you know, woke companies like, you know, the big uh, asset management companies from considering non-financial factors when they are uh, putting together their investment decisions. So I think I think it'd be a great, you know, boon for those of us who don't, you know, want ESG to cloud uh, these companies and, and and prevent them from actually uh, pursuing uh, profitable endeavors and in, in services and products that the people want. So, yeah, but obviously, I think it's dead on arrival in the uh, U.S. Senate. So sure. we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to wait till at least twenty twenty five till this thing has any sort of chance. So, Justin, I got a couple of articles that I want to get into that uh, really I think highlight just the what the future of ESG is. Um, but before I get into that, I want to give you an opportunity to talk on any of the things you know maybe from that. Uh, ensuring whatever guidance bill or the anti-ESG month going on. Do you have any comments on that stuff before I dive into these next couple articles? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think my my main concern is that al- although I think all these things are, you know, are important, um, and I think the investment side of things is is really important, there are some really important key issues that are not necessarily being addressed with a lot of the legislation that's being proposed um, in Congress, although there are some good bills that have been floated out there, um, and uh, in state legislatures across the country as well. Um, You know, it's important that investment decisions be based on investment considerations and that you don't have invest uh investment management firms taking other people's money and assets and then using that to transform society in ways that they like i mean i think that that's important but i mean the thing that you mentioned earlier about banking from brian moynihan the letter that i was talking about was from larry fink not at blackrock that's what i was thinking at, at bank of america but um but that's more important than the asset. I mean, the banking thing is actually, in my opinion, more important than even what BlackRock is doing and people like that. And the reason for that is because, although I guess you could say they're related because BlackRock probably owns a big chunk of Bank of America, right? But mm-hmm. banks, you can't, it's one thing to have investors like Larry Fink say, we really want you, ExxonMobil, to stop selling oil and gas. Like, that's really bad. And obviously, that's important. But ExxonMobil, theoretically, if the other shareholders got together and said, no, we want ExxonMobil, an oil and gas company, to keep selling oil and gas. Um, but if Bank of America says, and all the other large banks get together and say, no more loans, no more banking services, no more checking accounts, no more anything for you if you sell oil and gas, then you literally can't function. Like it, do- it doesn't matter. All the shareholders could say, this is what we want. But if you can't get banking services, you can't exist as a business. So it's just not possible. And, and the payment service providers, same thing. If all the payment service, Visa and MasterCard and all those people get together and say, nope, sorry, we're not processing any payments for, for anybody who is engaged in this business, then you can't function in society as a, in a consumer-based economy. So those people really do hold the keys to this. And unless you have a, uh, uh, rules in place that make sure that these people can't all collude together to drive whole industries out of business just because that's what they want, while they simultaneously have investments in competitors to ExxonMobil and other things like that. So they're going to make money off of this. Um, And they're working hand in hand with government and central banks to make these transformations happen. Unless you have rules for that, 
then you're not going to fix the problem just by dealing with the investor side of things. That is important, but you got to deal with all the banking stuff too, which is why that quote from Brian Moynihan, Bank of America is maybe the biggest bank in the United States, depending on how you want to calculate that. Um, You know, if they, if they're going to go in that direction and they're going to say, Nope, we're just going to drive you out of business using banks, then you really can't survive. And and that's, (laughs) that's so important for people to pay attention to that. Yeah, There's this article. That is such a great point. And also Donnie, this, uh, you know, just like Justin was saying, uh, the big banks and big asset management companies are preventing uh, these oil and gas companies from opening up new drilling sites and new production sites which means that they are you know, decreasing the amount of production available. They're also not allowing them to build the infrastructure, the pipelines and such that is needed to carry the stuff from the ground to the uh, consumer. So yeah. It, yeah, it, 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 it literally is a, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, like uh, 20th century, um, uh, you know, big business and big government getting together, colluding, and it's, it's an antitrust. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely wild stuff. I mean, there's this article I was reading recently about like some of the arguments that investment firms were supposedly trying to make when defending their adherence to ESG as opposed to you know basic fiduciary duties to maximize profits for their clients, yada yada yada. Uh, and basically, the argument was, well, you know, pursuing ESG aligned strategy is the best course in securing long term maximizing profits. So, so we are actually still adhering to these financial uh, fiduciary duties and all of that. And I forget like what article I was reading that was addressing this, but the author said something like, "Oh yeah, you know, that would be an okay argument if there weren't so many people across all of these institutions specifically saying that ESG was a great way to change society." Like that's like very forefront and all these people that are advocating for this uh, type of thing in their rhetoric. And yeah, this is, you know, like it's very true. We could find a a million quotes, you know, to this effect. Uh, in fact, I was reading an article published in the Aspen Times, and this is in the show notes, about an ESG summit that recently took place where one of the speakers uh, said exactly this sort of thing. The The article, which is like a glowing puff piece about this conference, and it ends with a quote of one of the speakers saying, ESG is no longer simply about managing risk, but how business can create value and drive change. So it's like, ah, it's not about maximizing profits or anything. It's about creating change. And, and I think that this is something that, like, we cannot let them get away from. Like, I refuse to cede the ground that ESG is something other than uh, a way of trying to change society. Like, you sold this whole reimagining imagining capitalism and rewarding companies that follow the agenda and punishing bad companies that do things that are deemed bad by the people that create the rules. Like, that was part of your selling of this entire idea. So we cannot let them get away from that. And we've covered in length the way ESG is used to hurt entire industries like oil and gas. We've been talking about that. And I've always warned that these rules are all subjective and they're all, uh, you know, able to be changed. And the whim, you know, whenever the next Davos meeting or anything like that happens, that could undermine complete other industries or even, you know, personal liberties. Well, I have a piece from Bloomberg that shows this point almost too well like it's it's almost as if i wrote it under a pseudonym or something which i didn't i promise so in the article titled big food should be esg's next target author marin somerset webb uh asks how many diet cokes are too many diet cokes and if you sell too many should you get an esg downgrade or have a health offset of some kind a nutra credit perhaps 
it w- if it would uh, be bought from, say, the National Health Service in the UK or a gut health education group, that's not as ridiculous as it sounds, particularly if you are a big company going after a top ESG rating. So the rest of the article talks about the negative health effects of ultra processed foods and its toll on the national health and the cost to society because of all of that and how ESG doesn't adequately take this into account when it, when it in terms of cost to society. So um, so I mean is it possible uh, that that ESG could one day add on some metrics that take into account health effects of, of food products that are sold by companies. I don't think that's a stretch at all. And this is just an article showing that there are people that are proposing this exact sort of thing. So Stone, what is your reaction when you hear a, a proposal like this to greatly expand ESG's reach into a whole new set of industries? Yes, uh, <laughs> I would say that's uh, my understanding. That's very ridiculous. And but also <laughs> not unlike ESG in terms of it, it's such a I understand it's like growth and outreach is kind of like very like cancer. It spreads to every different aspect of the, the, the broad areas that it looks at to like environmental, social and governance. And in this case, it would be under the S, the, the social category, which would consider just any way it can kind of micromanage um, making suggestions for how uh, individual Americans should uh, kind of supervise their own like health and, and, and making these kind of subjective work recommendations for you know like the, the the ideal way that they should kind of be monitoring their gut health and in procuring certain foods uh, but i think that it it, it covers a, a broader issue which you all kind of touched upon a little bit earlier uh in, in regards to the, the the problem of esg ratings and um e, e, these esg rating firms um I, they, they basically produce these very highly subjective scores that aren't grounded in uh, much of the like uh, understanding of kind of financial um, like objective measures, objective yeah, objective <laughs> measures or me- metrics, right? Yeah, and it's basically they and, I, and I've read in, in certain studies that they only agree with each other like less than thirty five percent of the time, at least among a lot of the the, the major firms like I think Moody's and uh, MSCI uh, and then ISS. They actually have their own firm. A lot of these. They, they, they always have their own special criteria that's built within within their own subjective view of like what they believe is like the, the, the most ideal environmental organization or social justice driven organization or governance based one. And they, they, they basically they, they, there's no like benchmark for um, like what's what's kind of like the standard across the board in terms of like what should be looked at for a company having a high ESG score versus a low one. And then, like you mentioned, companies that receive low scores typically are denied access to loans. Uh, If if you're an individual, you might uh, be denied like a credit line or um, a a bank account. Many people have been debanked who have already like had an established account at like a a bank, like especially JP Morgan. Um, I think they, we're in some hot water over debanking um, former Senator uh, Sam Brownback uh, for his um, criticism of communist China. And, and I think they kind of severed his bank account for no explanation because of that. And, and, and just but also just because you can get like a low ESG score. And it's like it's just a way of imposing these meaningless social credit scores that don't really have any like financial weight or connection to reality. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's funny to me because like I was reading this article and, and just based off the headline, I was like, I can't believe this. And as I was reading it, I was just like, you know what? Like as as vehemently as I disagree with all of the ESG stuff and, and any metrics that I could like take into place, uh, uh, you know, no matter how good sounding they are and all of that, it's just like this is more of a compelling argument, like targeting and uh, you know, bad foods or something like that. Ultra processed foods or all of that is a more compelling argument to me than the climate change justification for ESG. In fact, I think ESG, they should just relabel the E for ESG and make it be eating instead of environmental. But uh, but, you know, it does Honey. highlight the fact that ESG can be expanded to take into account anything. And, and you know, we're talking about health here. And, uh, you know, I'll bring up firearms again, because wasn't it not that long ago that the CDC adopted firearm violence as a public health problem? So is it really crazy that if we start getting into the, the public health aspect of all of this, you know, putting it under the S column of ESG, that like firearms aren't going to find their place in there at one point like that? I really think that, you know, like you said, you know, this starts to kind of metastasize across everything. You know, it start. It could start off small, like any government program. It could start off small, and before you know it, it's got its tentacles into everything. Chris, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand where you're coming from by saying that it could be beneficial for these companies to try to come down on these, you know, junk food producers. However, I think that's a very slippery slope, and I don't think we should even go near that slope. Because first of all, who are they to determine what we should and shouldn't eat, and you know what? Oh yeah. You know, and, oh, don't and, get me and, wrong. And, I'm not in support of this. I, oh, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But I think a lot of Americans kind of think, well, yeah, this is like you know smoking back in the day, and you know the the, the evil tobacco companies were get, you know making people sick on purpose and making money off them, and that's terrible. Okay, but people have the choice to to you know smoke cigarettes if they want. People have the choice to drink junk food and you know eat eat and drink you know that kind of stuff if they want. I I'm a firm believer in choice, and not have the government have any sort of you know nanny state role whatsoever. It sounds good on its face because, oh, well, people will be healthier and we'll reduce healthcare costs and all this kind of stuff. But no, I think once you go down that road, there's no going back. And it's oh, yeah. just going to lead to more and more micromanagement, which is, I think, one of the biggest uh, aspects of ESG. And they're, they're, they're trying to do an end run. They're trying not to pass laws that say you can't do this, you can't do that. But they're using their financial clout. And I think that is that is so important to like for people to understand to, quote, nudge the people, nudge society in the direction that they see fit. But we, mm -hmm. we, we must you know not allow them to, to do that. And they do have the financial power to do that right now. And we need to just say no. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, the subjective nature of all of it. It's like, obviously, there are certain foods that we can, you know, uh, everyone would agree on is on the healthy side of things. And there's a bunch of foods that everyone would agree on are on the unhealthy side of things. And there's a whole gray area in the middle. And maybe some people think that having uh, meat in your diet's a good thing. Other people don't. Other people, you know, uh, uh, tell their kids not to eat bugs. World Economic Forum is suggesting that you eat plenty of bugs. So it's like there's a big gray area. And, you know, what, uh, you know, what, what things should be awarded some ESG points and which ones should uh, result in deductions from ESG. Uh, Justin, do you want to comment on this or do you want first swing at the next thing? No, let's go to the next one. All right, we are running out of time. So this is where we get into the real future of ESG. So first off, I want to acknowledge that the entire ESG concept is only possible with the use of fairly advanced technology. In the days prior to, 
I don't know, high-speed internet, which really wasn't that long ago. The idea of collecting and analyzing this much data on this many companies to make a plethora of different business and financial decisions was just not even possible. It's only in the past few decades that this system itself is even a feasible system to try to operate your economy on. And the advancements in technology are only going to make this ESG system stronger and more intrusive and more controlling. So in a past episode, this had to have been a month and a half ago, something like that. We talked about a Forbes article titled, Are You Ready for AI-Driven Radical ESG Transparency? And that article discussed how AI tools were being crafted to further improve collection of data to give a clear image of a company's true ESG score. One of the tools called Clarity AI would, quote, dig around in companies' sustainability data and share back simple graphics and reports. Greenwatch AI compares companies' green claims against their actual carbon emissions, and other tools are also being crafted to detect greenwashing. In a recently released book that you might have heard of called Dark Future, uh, we talked about how tools uh, were being created to sift through companies' reports and board minutes to detect the tone and subject matter of uh, of these materials to determine just how serious these firms were when, uh, to adhering to climate and other ESG goals. But I have a new one for you. This is something I just kind of came across the other day. I actually wrote an op-ed about it. It's unpublished, so you're getting a sneak peek here. In June, a global management consulting firm named A.T. Kearney announced a partnership with Al Gore's nonprofit Climate Trace. A.T. Kearney is a company that uh, helps their clients establish and ent- uh, implement decarbonization strategies. And Al Gore's Climate Trace is a project that exists solely to track and identify sources of greenhouse gas emissions. How do they do this? Well, primarily with a network of 300 surveillance satellites and 11,000 air and ground sensors across the world. In their announcement article, A.T. Kearney explains how their partnership will essentially supercharge ESG. They write that ESG programs are only as good as the data behind them. And that uh, using data supplied by Trace, they can give their clients a fuller picture of their carbon footprint, helping them better navigate the, quote, reporting requirements from governments and ESG investors. It's also important to note that A.T. Kearney is partners with the World Economic Forum. They have been since the 70s. They've authored papers together, and Kearney also hosted a series of panels at the 2019 Davos conference. So Al Gore who serves on the World Economic Forum's Board of Trustees, he announced the plans for Climate Trace during Davos 2022. He talked about all of his spy satellite surveillance satellites, not spy satellites. <laughs> what am I talking about? Same You're difference. It's so- <laughs> Same difference. Come on. So, so we have here a World Economic Forum ally, A.T. Kearney, partnering with a World Economic Forum ally, Al Gore Surveillance Satellites Program, to supercharge ESG, which is a focal point of the World Economic Forum's vision of the so-called stakeholder capitalism. Like, this is the future of ESG that we are venturing into. It's, it, we're getting to a point in ESG compliance is going to be so is going to be so enforced and so inescapable that pushing a back against it is going to be futile. And all of these different tools are are bolstering this machinery that I was talking about earlier. So, uh, Stone, thoughts on that or anything about the the future of ESG 
and uh you know please don't discontinue your work on esg because of <laughs> because of anything that i said that makes you feel powerless against this machine what are your thoughts oh, oh no uh donald you you really did an excellent job um presenting that very uh, alarming issue with the, with the world economic forum and and that kind of secret collusion uh, I think what you're what you said is, is very apt in terms of uh, a lot of the future of ESG is going to be set by what's happening on the international stage and, um, and just for some context um, uh, ESG I believe that the market for ESG globally I believe 80 percent of it is centered in Europe and only like around 10 to 11 percent is in uh, the US. And so a lot of what you see happening in the U.S. is inspired by a lot of these international developments from uh, the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investing, PRI, um, the uh, Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, TCFD, which is, I think, uh, chaired by Michael Bloomberg, uh, and and then also uh, what what you're hearing from Klaus Schwab and the the WEF, and also, um, I believe, the uh, Glasgow Alliance for net zero that uh, I think the companies that make up that oversee $100 trillion in assets under management, they're the ones kind of setting a lot of the criteria for what public companies in the U.S. should be looking to in terms of engaging in these kind of um, well, what they suggest should be voluntary ESG disclosures of, of what they do, and then also adopting ESG principles that are set by the UN and the IMF and other global institutions. And then our our government is trying to kind of push the process forward by adopting um, these kind of mandatory policies, like what you're seeing with the SEC's climate disclosure rule. It's no longer enough for companies to just kind of uh, voluntarily promote their own um, kind of sustainability report, but they, they're actually going to have to require them to do that in the mm-hmm. future. But um, I, I think yeah, what, what's happening is that um, a lot of the standards are being set internationally. They're being adopted amongst many kind of idealistic uh, progressives in the U.S. who are kind of trying to mandate a, a, a a national-based ESG mandate that exists across um, the, the corporate boardrooms, but also are pushed by government entities like the SEC that doesn't have any statutory justification for regulating climate. And then also um, is pushed by a lot of private entities like the um, Glass-Lewis and ISS, the proxy advisory firms, and then also the ESG rating companies. So it's it's like a, it's like a broad version of corporatism, this right. you know, collusion between government and private companies to try to push this 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 universal mandate but what Just, worries me is that a lot of european companies are saying that if you don't and you know if you don't do this then you can't be involved in our business because if your supply chains don't you know yeah. uh, you know don't reflect esg ideology well then you can't do business in europe and the globalization that we live in today, U.S. companies can survive if they can't do business in Europe and these other places. Uh, Justin, I apologize. I said I promised that you would get first whack at this topic, I know. and, and I know. I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to give you a final word on everything that we've talked about. But this this ESG system of the future, powered by AI and and fed into by Al Gore's spy satellite network, <laughs> we're seriously in an are, are we in like a Mission Impossible movie right now? Is this, yeah. is this a James Bond plot that we are unwittingly a part of? Like this is getting crazy. Yeah, but I mean, what people need to understand is, and, and this and this is why I've been so aggressive about ESG for you know the last few years. This is why I think it 
it really needs to be destroyed. It, it doesn't need to be, oh, well, you know, maybe we can just tweak it to make it more, you know, free market oriented or whatever. Like everyone involved is actively designing ESG and promoting it and using it in increasingly more tyrannical ways and in ways that are not market oriented. It happens all the time. And so in, in the book that Donnie and I worked on with Glenn Beck, Dark Future, we talk a lot about different ways that this is happening. Um, one of the things that uh, we, we do actually, I think, talk about Al Gore's uh, spy satellite network in that book, although not in the way that you just described it, because we didn't have that information when we did it. Um, but we also talk about how um, AI is going to be used. This is this is a real thing. There are people already talking about doing this, designing artificial intelligence so that they can take voice recordings of CEOs and other people at major corporations talking about their ESG initiatives and use AI to determine whether the tone of their voice mm. is serious hmm. and, and whether we can trust what they're saying and then build that into our ESG analyses. I mean, this is a real thing that people are actually doing to determine whether people are serious about ESG or not. Because of course, anyone can just get up there and say that they support ESG, right? But how do we know they're telling the truth? Well, let's have AI analyze it. That's one way that we can do it. Um, another thing that they're doing is they're designing AI right from the very start, various AI systems, so that ESG metrics are built into AI so that the conclusion that AI gives you for any given particular problem has various ESG metrics built into that. So they're not just analyzing the data and then giving you the answer. Oh, the AI got him. Hey, I got him. Hey, I got him. Skynet, <laughs> shut him down. That is that is a perfect way, perfect way to end it. But oh, 